If you have your Bibles this morning, open them with me to Joshua chapter 24. And if you don't have a Bible and you'd like one, there would be a couple right there that you're welcome to use. Today we come to the conclusion of our study of the book of Joshua. I have looked at Joshua before, a long time ago, but I've seen a lot of things in this study that would uh, enable us to live the Christian life that God has called us to live. Now, this is going to be a little different this morning in that what we're going to do is the same thing that Joshua does. And that is review some of the lessons that they've learned as God has brought them into the land. In fact, he's going to go back to the time of Abraham and talk about all that God has done. So that's what we want to do as well, is look throughout our study of the book of Joshua and pull out some of the principles that uh, we have learned there. Now some of these things would be very simple and yet uh, very important as we seek to apply them in our lives as Christians. Joshua was a man who had a good grasp on reality. He could see the obvious, you might say. And sometimes that's not always the case, even among learned scholars who should be able to take a look at a situation, evaluate what's happening, and come up with a correct analysis of what should be done. Uh, Last week we mentioned the fact that we are given a task in the Scripture of evaluating the past, and that's what we're doing this morning as we look to see what God was doing in Joshua's day, and then interpreting the present and envisioning the future. The story is told of Sherlock Holmes and his sidekick, Dr. Watson, who went on a camping trip for the weekend, and they wanted to do some fishing out in the countryside of England, and so they set up their camp, and it was a great day at fishing. And that evening on the campfire, they had some grilled fish and perhaps a little too much of the fruit of the vine, but they slept very well that night. Until about 3 a.m., Holmes nudged Watson, and he said, Watson, look up at the sky and tell me what you see. Watson said, I see millions of stars. Holmes said, and what do they tell you? Well, astronomically, it tells me that there are millions of galaxies and perhaps billions of planets. Astrologically, it tells me that Saturn is in Leo. Theologically, it tells me that we have a great God and we are small and insignificant. Horologically, it tells me it's about 3 a.m. Meteorologically, it tells me that we will have a beautiful day tomorrow. What does it tell you, Holmes? Watson, you idiot, somebody stole our tent. (laughs) Now, my mother never would let me call anybody an idiot, but I guess Sherlock Holmes didn't have that kind of mama. An obvious case of misrepresenting the present. But Joshua made no such mistake. And to be certain that the people didn't make that mistake either, he called the nation together again. Last week, you remember, he called the leadership together. Now he's calling the entire nation, including the leadership, and they're coming to Shechem. It's the renewal of the covenant. 
the National Assembly assembled there in Shechem. Now you remember some things about Shechem. Shechem was the place where Abraham had built an altar of worship after receiving his first promise from God after he was in the promised land. It's the place where Jacob had returned from Mesopotamia, you remember, and he built an altar and he called his altar El Elohe Israel, the mighty God of Israel. This was the beautiful valley of Shechem where there was a natural amphitheater and where previously Joshua had built an altar to the Lord in Mount Ebal. And you remember they read the blessings and they read the curses. And he put up those stone pillars and they were printed on there all the words of the law. That came right after the second battle of Ai, way back at the beginning of the conquest of the land. He wanted to bring the people to a familiar location to review the covenant and renew the covenant that they had made with God. Now we see that in the very first verse. Then Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and called for the elders of Israel and for their heads and their judges and their officers, and they presented themselves before God. So he is going to review some things that it would be good to remember. And that's what we want to do this morning. Now in our review in verses 2 through 13, God uses the personal pronoun I 18 times. I took, I gave, I assigned, I sent, I afflicted, I brought, I delivered, and so on. God didn't want there to be any question here as to who is initiating the action. It's God who's doing all these things. Beginning in verse 2, Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, from ancient times your fathers lived beyond the river. That's the Euphrates. Namely, Terah, the father of Abraham, the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and multiplied his descendants and gave him Isaac. And to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and to Esau I gave Mount Seir to possess it. But Jacob and his sons went down to Egypt. We are familiar with the story. And then skipping down to verse 11, And you crossed the Jordan and came to Jericho. And the citizens of Jericho fought against you. And the Amorite and the Perizzite, the Canaanite and the Hittite, and the Girgashite, the Hivite and the Jebusite, and I gave them into your hand. Would anybody be concerned about the fact that back in Genesis chapter 12, God called Abraham out of idolatry? At least he called him out of an idolatrous family. And I think that was a call of salvation and also a call of service. I don't think Abraham would have, Abram would have known God unless God had revealed himself to Abram. The same thing happened in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul was riding his beast of burden down the road to Damascus and God said it's time to get Paul's attention and he knocked him right off that donkey. I don't think Paul would have been deliberating in the Scripture to say, well, it looks like, oh, it looks like Jesus Christ is really the Messiah. You see, he had that little bit of pharisaical pride and sometimes you just kind of get involved in self-worship and everything you know and your uh, privileges in life and your birth heritage and all those things, 
that Paul had. We wouldn't be guilty of anything like that, would we? No, we're not, we're not Pharisees here. Well, at any rate, instead of reading through this entire account, verses 2 through 13, I want to focus some of our review on the Battle of Jericho. And the reason is that's one of God's amazing miracles in the Scripture. And it's also an instance that required tremendous faith on the part of God's people. So what were some things that we learned from the Battle of Jericho? Let's take a look. Our principles of living by faith. God delights in enabling His people to accomplish the impossible. Now, as Americans, uh, we're usually looking for a way to get it done. And that's good. And we need people like that. But when it is impossible, sometimes the doctor says, I'm sorry, we can't help you. When things are impossible, God delights in providing in those instances. He doesn't always do it the way we think He would do it. There are a number of impossible situations in the book of Joshua, not the least of which was getting a million and a half people across that Jordan River without any boats or without a bridge. But God did that. Now Jericho was tightly shut up because of the sons of Israel. No one went out and no one came in. Jericho was more a city, more a fortress than it was a city. And you remember the Israelites didn't have any battering rams. They didn't have any siege engines of any sort. They had no special equipment. It really was an impossible situation. God's promises correlate with His ways of doing things. As a Christian, you can't do things the way the world does it and expect God to bless it. I'm talking about maybe a little dishonesty in business here and there or uh, just the way the world does things. They have their own system of doing things. And usually if you can get away with it, it's okay. Maybe cheating on your income tax or whatever it might be. Joshua chapter 2 and verse 2 and 3. The Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its kings and valiant warriors. Now here comes God's way in verse 3. And you shall march around the city. All the men of war circling the city once, you'll do so for six days. Doesn't sound like a very reliable military strategy. But God has His ways of doing things. Number three, victory is won through men and women of faith who act on God's Word. Verse 6, So Joshua the son of Nun called the priest and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant, let the seven priests carry the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. Then he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, let the armed men go on before the Ark of the Lord. Now, the city of Jericho was about basically the size of this property. Maybe not quite that big. It wasn't a huge place. But it was a pretty good march. If the people didn't have faith in their leader, they're going to say, do what? And then the second day, then the third day, then the fourth day, do what? We're going to march around this place again? Well, yeah, but that was God's way. And Joshua believed that. And he was able to convince those people, this is what God said do, and this is what we're going to do it. And then on the seventh day, seven times around. That was a good hike that day. Number four, the obedience of one man can influence an entire nation. 
We've seen that in history with Whitfield and Wesley in England. We've seen that with Jonathan Edwards in America. We've seen that with Hudson Taylor in China. And we can go on and on. Men of faith who made a difference in the nation where God had called them to serve. So here's Joshua making a difference. Verse 8, And it was so that when Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward and blew the trumpets, and the ark of the covenant of the Lord followed them. Now this is the kickoff in the land of Israel, uh, in the land what will become the land of Israel, the promised land. If they can't get past Jericho, they're not going to be able to make their way up that mountain pass and split the nations there, the Canaanite nations, and then conquer them as we've seen that they did. So here is the test. Number five, some practical advice. It's good to learn when to shout and when to remain silent. Uh, James says, be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. But there is a time to shout. And verse 10 tells us the time on this occasion. But Joshua commanded the people, saying, You shall not shout, nor let your voice be heard, nor let a word proceed out of your mouth. Until the day I tell you shout, then you shall shout. Number six, victory is not dependent on conventional methods or special equipment. Israel had neither. But when they shouted, amazing things happened. So the people shouted, and the priests blew the trumpets, and it came about when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, that the people shouted with a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city. Every man straight ahead, they took the city. Have you ever seen pictures of Dresden, Germany, after we bombed Dresden? Well, the walls weren't laying down flat. There were a lot of walls still standing and a lot of rubble. But the way God did this was to lay those walls right down where the Israelites could walk right into the town all the way around, and that's what they did. Number seven, the victory has been given, <clears throat> Excuse me, but you have to take it by faith. The victory in abundant living in Christ has been given to us, but we have to take it by faith. <clears throat> Hebrews 11 and verse 30. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. And the last one of these principles, the cause of defeat can be discovered by prayer, but it takes more than prayer to recover lost ground. You remember what happened right after Jericho. Chapter 7 and verse 5, And the men of Ai struck down about 36 of their men, that's the Israelis, and pursued them from the gate as far as Shebarim, and struck them down on the descent, so that the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening, both he and the elders of Israel. And they put their dust, uh, put dust on their heads. One of the most difficult things in the Christian life is the recovery of lost ground. So we want to try to ensure that we don't backslide in the Christian life. You've got to have a strategy, we said. Oh, thank you so much. We've got to have a strategy. And not only that, but we've got to have accountability. Somebody who is going to help us make sure that we do what has to be done. 
uh, Joshua had Caleb there helping him with his faith. Thank you, Esther. That's what I needed. <clears throat> now we want to take a look at the emphasis that is given during the conquest of Canaan. Now we're not looking at every principle or every emphasis, but just some of the things that we can see here. The emphasis in the conquest of the promised land was on responsibilities instead of rights. It's my right that so-and-so and so-and-so. Uh, Caleb could have said, you know, I have a right to retire. I'm 85 years old and I've been fighting here for 20 years. But instead, Caleb was still fighting giants when he was 85 years old. Because he was the other guy besides Joshua who had faith that the Lord was going to do precisely what He said He was going to do. And the amazing thing was, Caleb said he was as strong on that day as the time when they came in. There was a guy that uh, really served the Lord, and the Lord blessed him to be able to continue serving. Well, the emphasis is on serving instead of leading. Now, we need good leaders, but I'm talking about a heart attitude, a servant's heart. You remember Joshua learned to serve under Moses. And Moses is always referred to by God as Moses, my servant, not Moses, my leader. And then Joshua became known as the servant to Moses. So he had a real good example to serve and observe and see a man of God who was a tremendous leader, one of the greatest leaders the world has ever known, but he was willing to serve. And that's what he did. Well, the em <coughs> emphasis on self-control instead of self-gratification. And we could probably say a few other things besides self-gratification. Now, the Israelites had a habit ever since coming out of Egypt. Do you remember what it was? Showed up all the time. Murmuring and complaining. They ran out of water early in the day, murmuring and complaining. They just seen the Red Sea parted. But they were murmuring and complaining. So Joshua said to himself, I suppose, we're going to teach these guys a lesson in self-control. All the while that we're marching around this city, there will not be a word come out of your mouth. Now, that would have been very difficult for some of those people. Now, you've known people like that. They probably had to use the duct tape method to keep from saying anything uh, during that time. But that was their little opportunity to learn some self-control. And uh, they certainly did. They did it just the way they were told. Well, sometimes uh, patience, instead of pushing ahead, wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and He will strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. When God rolled back the waters of the Jordan River and they went across and they camped at Gilgal, I'm sure that Joshua and the other men were chomping at the bit to get some things done in the Promised Land. But Joshua was willing to wait at the camp at Gilgal for the Lord's instructions. And the Lord had a number of instructions for him at Gilgal. Set up the two 12-stone memorials, one over on the dry land, one in the dry riverbed before the waters came back together. Reinstatement of circumcision took place there at camp in Gilgal. The end of 40 years of manna. Can you imagine eating manna for 40 years? That must have been quite an experience. But then there at Gilgal, they ate the first produce in the new land. 
There was the appearance of the captain of the Lord's host to give Joshua some encouragement in what was coming, to have faith. The captain of the Lord's host. I think Christ is with him. And then the celebration of the Passover. Now contrast that with King Saul, who years later was at the very same place, Gilgal, and Samuel, who was acting as a priest, was supposed to come after seven days and offer the sacrifice. And Saul sees the Philistine army building up and he sees some of his guys dwindling away in fear. And finally he says, I can't wait any longer. I've got to offer the sacrifice myself. Now the king can't offer the sacrifice. And the minute he got through offering the sacrifice, Samuel showed up and said, what we said last week, I believe, does the Lord delight in burnt offering as much as in obedience? And he really chastised Saul for what he had done. Then the next one, emphasizing problems as opportunities. Problem, chapter 17. The sons of Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh, came to Joshua and they said, Hey, we don't have enough land. We got many people, but we don't have enough territory here. What can we do? Well, Joshua thought about it. He said, you are a great people. Joshua was a, was a diplomat. He knew how to get things across and yet not violate any of God's requirements. And so he, he got them built up there and he said, look, here's a great opportunity for you. Clear out the woods, clear out all the trees, and clear the land, and you'll have the land for your flocks and herds, and clear out the Canaanites by combat, and everything will be taken care of. And sure enough, that's what they had to do. I like this guy, Joshua. He's one of my great heroes of the Scripture. Because he had trouble, trouble, trouble. And yet he was always trusting in the Lord and giving these guys a solution to their problems. So we want to maintain the perspective of Joshua and Caleb. And to do that, I would say thinking is more important than feeling. Now God gives us feelings to express what is in our hearts, but oftentimes, duty conflicts with our feelings. Now, which would be more important? The duty or the feelings? Can you think of an example in Scripture where that happened? How about in the Garden of Gethsemane, right after the Lord's Supper Passover meal? Christ has a little conflict with His feelings. And He says, isn't there any other way we can accomplish this atonement besides the cross? Nope. That's what it's got to be. Not my will, but thy will be done. We're not trying to deprecate feelings. They're important. We're just saying sometimes you have to set your feelings aside and move on with responsibility, with duty. After Jericho, Joshua was thinking, I'm sure, about his strategy. And they were going to go up to Ai. They were going to divide the country. Then the southern campaign, knock out those kings of those city-states. And then the northern campaign. And his military strategy is still studied today. Well, I'm sure that he gave thought to that. And he wasn't just saying, well, I think we'll, I think we'll just launch out here and take one city as it comes. No, he had a great strategy. Contrast that his mental deliberation with the Amalekites' celebration after they had conquered David's camp at Ziklag. Of course, the reason they conquered it was David wasn't there. Look what happens to these guys, 1 Samuel 30, verse 16. When he, 
That's the young Egyptian servant, the Amalekites, that they had left behind because he was sick. David's men picked him up. When he had brought him down, that's David, behold, they, the Amalekites, were spread all over the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David slaughtered them from the twilight until evening of the next day. Now, if those Amalekites had been thinking instead of celebrating, they would have realized that a warrior like David, the moment he found out about what had happened, was going to be coming after them. But they're too busy just enjoying themselves. Second thing, people are more important than things. Misplaced values, such as we have in the United States, would cause us to murder an unborn child in the womb for the sake of convenience, probably geared toward material things. We don't want this pregnancy, so we'll just get rid of it. 57 million now. That is incredible to me. That is an entire nation that we've murdered. Hitler didn't do anything like that. But I guess the difference is charm. You can see the live baby, but you can't see anything in the womb. Well, how do we get off on that? People are more important than things. Misplaced values caused Achan to disregard the welfare of the entire nation so that he could have 200 shekels of silver a 50-shekel bar of gold, and a snazzy new suit from Shinar, the fashion capital of Mesopotamia. There's one guy who takes matters into his own hands and uh, takes some of the plunder that uh, was under the ban, under the harem, and causes problems for the entire nation. Well, uh, or number three, worship is more important than entertainment. Sometimes we feel like we can combine the two, but we have to be careful. After the second battle of Ai, which the Israelites won, Joshua built an altar to the God of Israel there in Mount Ebal, and they worshipped the Lord together. Contrast that with Belshazzar, king of Babylon, who decided to throw a great feast for all of his lords so that they could just have a time of celebration and entertainment. But suddenly, during the feast, a thousand lords, we're told, this is a big-time feast, suddenly, during the feast, he calls for the gold and silver vessels that his dad Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple in Jerusalem to be brought in so that they can drink out of those gold and silver vessels and that they could worship the gods of gold and silver and brass and iron and wood and stone. Well, that was a bad mistake. They were worshiping all right, but they were worshiping their own gods. And if he had been thinking, he would have probably thought, even as a pagan, the God of Israel is not going to be pleased that we brought out these sacred vessels for a big drinking party. And about that time, the handwriting appears on the wall. And that very night, he lost his kingdom and he was slain. How about this one? Scripture is more important than my experience. We see this one all the time. Oh yes, we tried family worship, but that just didn't work. Oh, we tried Scripture memory, but that didn't work for us. Well, uh, be careful. Don't weigh my experience of this much against the Bible, which covers it all, really. Sometimes we see some things going on for years, and we say, look, that's not the way the Scripture said it was supposed to be. Yeah, but it's not over yet. 
There are other generations even to come. We don't know what God is going to do. But we know we need to trust the Scripture there. You remember the rich young ruler? He said, all these commandments I've kept from my youth. Well, that's not what the Scripture said. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Uh, Joshua 8, 33, All Israel with their elders and officers and judges were standing on both sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant, the strangers, as well as the natives, skipping to 34. Then afterward he read all the words of the law. The blessing and the curse according to all that was written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded, which Joshua did, which Joshua did not read before the assembly of Israel with the women and the little ones and the strangers who were living among them. He didn't assemble the people to celebrate their military exploits against the Canaanites. He assembled them to hear the Word of God. The Scripture is so important. Well, quickly, uh, number five and the last one. Victory is more important than pleasure. On one occasion later, King Ben-Hadad of Syria mustered a huge army. He had a coalition of 32 kings with him. And he sent word to the king of Israel who was in Samaria, which was the capital of the northern tribes at that time. And here's what he said, in 24 hours, I'm going to be plundering the city. So you might as well just go ahead and surrender. Do you remember those famous words by which the king answered him? He said, let not him who girds on his armor boast like him who takes it off. That was a pretty good answer. So the king of Israel got together his measly 700-man army and he went out to meet the Syrians. Guess what King Ben-Hadad was doing in the middle of the day? Amazing. And they went out at noon while Ben-Hadad was drinking himself drunk in the temporary shelters with the 32 kings that helped him. And they were probably helping themselves at that time as well. Needless to say, the Israelis struck the Syrians with a great slaughter that day. Now contrast that with Joshua, who had just won a great battle, was winning a great battle in the valley of Ajalon against the Ten King Confederacy. And he could see victory, but the sun was going down. And he said, God, how about keep the sun up so that we can finish this battle? And God gave him the longest day. And the sun stayed in the sky and they won a great victory. And then he went on to seven other campaigns immediately. Not stopping for pleasure and celebration and all that sort of thing. Joshua was a guy who had uh, business in mind. Now there certainly is a time for celebration, but that's when all the business has been taken care of. Well, Joshua has a referendum for the people. They're going to vote with their voices. And here it is, verse 14, famous passage. Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt. Some of them still practice idolatry. And serve the Lord. And if it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers which your fathers served beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now he's not talking about choosing God for salvation. He's talking about choose who you're going to serve. These were God's chosen people. God had chosen them. And as Christians, we have to decide whom we're going to serve. 
We can serve ourselves. We can serve the um, American enterprise system. Uh, Not that we shouldn't do our best with all of that. But the Bible says, Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. And all these things be added unto us. And if we're doing well with the free enterprise system, use that, uh, those resources to build the kingdom. Sometimes God uh, blesses us with things like that. Now, God has chosen them. God chooses us and regenerates us so that we can choose Him to live the Christian life. Dead men can't really make much of a choice. Now, suppose I profess to be a Christian but I'm just not living the Christian life. That would be somewhat dangerous territory. We studied that in uh, 1 John. There is um, the referendum there that we just read. And then here in 1 John chapter 2, it says, They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went, went out in order that it might be shown that they are not of us. Loyalty. Staying there in the race, walking that straight and narrow path. And we come down to the last section then, reality. Joshua is a realist. The people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. And they go on to say why, and I won't read all of that this time. And they say, We will serve the Lord then Joshua issues an unusual response to that. In verse 19, Then Joshua said to the people, You will not be able to serve the Lord, for He is a holy God. He's a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions and your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then He will turn and do you harm and consume you after He has done good for you. And Joshua kind of goes on through verse 26 if you're in your Bible along the same line there. What a strange contradiction. God's done everything for the Israelites. Joshua's saying you need to serve Him with all your heart. And they say we will serve Him. And Joshua says you can't serve Him. And what he's saying is you can't serve Him in the power of the flesh. If you are not working according to the Spirit, you won't be able to serve Him. It seems like their proficiency in serving the Lord didn't match up to their position as God's chosen people. Why is that? Well, in closing, let me just give you a good reason. Hudson Taylor writes a little book, Union and Communion. Many people have union with Christ, but there's very little communion. There's very little communication. There is very little of the abundant life that God has called us to live. I think that's the crux of the problem. Now again, uh, Paul reminds us, are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, or are you now being perfected by the flesh? Uh, Let me give this quote that Alan Redpath quotes from Dr. Graham Scroggie. All Christians have eternal life. Not all Christians have abundant life. There can be life without health. There can be movement without any progress. There may be war, but defeat. We may serve, but never succeed. We may try, but never triumph. And the difference along the, uh, 
the difference all along the line is the difference between possessing life and experiencing life more abundant. This abundant life is simply the fullness of the life of Jesus Christ made possible by His death and resurrection and made real by the incoming of His Holy Spirit. That is abundant life. The trouble with so many of us is that we're on the right side of Easter, but the wrong side of Pentecost. The right side of pardon, but the wrong side of power. We're justified, but we're not sanctified. It's not enough to say that we're forgiven. We are called, says the book, unto holiness. That's pretty good. Well, let's close with um, testimony here. Joshua, from last week's chapter. Now behold, today I'm going the way of all the earth. And you know in all your hearts and in all your souls that not one word of all the good words which the Lord your God spoke concerning you has failed. All have been fulfilled for you. Not one of them has failed. And what's our job? Our job is to believe those words, trust in Him, and exercise faith to live this abundant life. Conquer the land fully. Drive out all of the enemy. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for this study of the book of Joshua. Thank You that You have included these details of their lives in the Scripture so that we could learn from them, so that we could understand that uh, we're not a lot different from those people, but we thank You that You're working now through the church, and the church is an international organization. Thank You that people of all tongues and tribes, people and nations can come to You, including ourselves as Gentiles. We're grateful to You for that. Lord, we want to have the faith of a Joshua and Caleb. We want to ask You to guide us on a daily basis that we might have more than just eternal life when we die, that we might be living the abundant life that You have called us to live now and that our lives would touch the lives of many others. Thank You for all of Your blessing, especially the great blessing of Jesus Christ and atonement through Him. We pray in His holy name. Amen.